Elisha said. As the Lord of hosts live, whom I serve, were it not that I have regard for King Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would give you neither a look nor a glance, but get me a musician. And then, while the musician was playing, the power of the Lord came on him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this wadi full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall see neither wind nor rain, but the wadi shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your cattle, and your animals. This is only a trifle in the sight of the Lord, for he will also hand Moab over to you. This, according to the second book of Kings, was the prophecy that the great prophet Elisha gave to three kings, the kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom, who were trying to invade another country, the land of Moab, and had run into a bit of a hitch. Now, I love a good war story as much as anybody, and I particularly love war stories that are all muddied up with prophecy and divine interference. But this story has some really surprising examples of divine intervention in it, and a few interesting twists. Let's dig into the story of that invasion. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 5.9, Mesha's War. Mesha, king of Moab, almost couldn't believe it when the news finally came to him. Ahab, the king of Israel, was finally dead. And maybe the time had finally come for him to bring an end to the great national disgrace of his nation. For the Moabites had angered their great god, Amosh, who had given them over to serve the king of Israel. For so many years, King Omri of Israel and his son Ahab had dominated everything throughout the entire region. The kingdom of Israel was an economic powerhouse with a military that no one could stand against. And so, abandoned by their god, the kings of Moab had really had no choice but to submit themselves and pay whatever protection money was demanded of them. The kingdom of Moab was not particularly wealthy, but they did have one thing that they excelled in and that offered great value. The flocks that they raised consistently proved to be of the best of quality. They made the very best sacrifices, the best eating, 
and the wool of the adult rams was greatly prized. And so, of course, as tribute, the Israelites had demanded a yearly supply of 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. Mesha had resented every single sheep that he had given over to the Israelites for so many years. But he really felt as if he had no choice. There was nothing that he could do but swallow his pride and pay the price. Nothing he could do, that is, until now. Ahab had lived so long, and his God had prospered him so much in everything that he had done, that Mesha had begun to think that this day would never come. But now, now the moment was here. If there was ever an opportunity to break away from an overlord, it was when that overlord was in the midst of a succession. Anything could go wrong, and usually did, at such times. If Moab rebelled now, there was a very good chance that they would be able to get away with it, at least long enough to build up their power to the point where they would finally be able to fight back. So, the king called in all of his advisers and informed them of his plans. The annual tribute of sheep and lambs was not going to be sent as planned. Instead, they would be sold off through other channels, traded for arms and armor to train and equip Moab's fighters. If the new king of Israel came looking for his tribute, he would be in for a big surprise. Young King Jehoram of Israel was furious when he heard of the rebellion of the Moabites. It was the very last thing he needed as he sought to consolidate his power and stabilize his new kingdom. His immediate impulse was to gather whatever troops he could muster on short notice and head straight for the borders of Moab by the shortest route. But Jehoram's father, Ahab, had taught him well, and he knew not to make rash decisions in the heat of passion. He gathered his advisers, and together they came up with a much more well-thought-through plan. Instead of traveling directly to Moab, they would take the long way around the Great Salt Sea, through the lands of their allies in Judah and their vassals in Edom. King Ahab had gone out of his way to create an alliance with the king of Judah. He even married his own daughter, Jehoram's sister, to King Jehoshaphat. And, according to the terms of the alliance, Judah really had no choice but to support the stronger kingdom of Israel. It was generally agreed 
that such a show of force would be an excellent way of reinforcing the fact that Jehoram was now in charge and that the empire his father had built was stronger than ever. And so, a message was quickly sent to King Jehoshaphat. Will you come to war with us? Jehoshaphat replied with the simple truth, I will. I am with you. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. So, King Jehoram called up his militia, loaded his chariots, and headed off towards Judah on the way to Moab. King Mesha of Moab learned of the Judahite and Israelite troop movements almost as soon as they were underway. He and his advisors were somewhat surprised that their enemies had chosen to take such a roundabout route on their attack. But actually, this was very good news. By going the long way, they might be able to invade with more troops, but more troops also meant more logistical problems, as Mesha, a seasoned campaigner, knew very well. Their route would also take them, as they passed the south end of the Great Salt Sea, through some of the driest terrain in the entire region. Wells and springs were very few and far between. It was also very unfamiliar territory for both the men of Israel and of Judah. They would be dependent upon the Edomites to guide them. And the Edomites, they resented Israelite overlordship almost as much as the Moabites. Mesha could send out his men to stop up and hide whatever sources of water were available. And, with a few well-placed bribes, he could make sure that the scouts of the enemy armies would never find them. Oh yes, this would be marvelous. If he played his cards right, the entire army of Israel would die of thirst in that terrible desert. Alas, Yahweh has summoned us, three kings, only to be handed over to Moab. This had been Jehoram's repeated refrain for many days now. He had said it so often that the other two kings were about ready to strangle him if they heard it one more time. But he was not exaggerating by any means. After several days of wandering through the desert wastes to the south of the Great Salt Sea, 
the armies of the kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom were teetering on the very brink of death. They had no water and no prospect of finding any. They had come to the point of no return. If they did not find water soon, they would have to turn around, and to back out of an important invasion like this would be a black mark on the new king of Israel's reputation. He might never live it down. In a way, he felt as if everything was hanging by a thread. Finally, Jehoshaphat spoke up. You go on and on about how these armies have been brought together by Yahweh, but have you truly consulted the God? I don't think we've heard anything from any of Yahweh's prophets. Is there one here? Have you brought any that we may consult? Jehoram grumbled, Oh, they never have anything nice to say about me, just like they never had anything nice to say about my father. Nevertheless, Jehoshaphat said, It would make me feel a lot better if we could find one. At this point, one of the king of Israel's servants spoke up. Hey, uh, I think that Elisha, son of Shaphath, is here. I saw him in the camp yesterday. Isn't he the one who used to serve Elijah? Elisha, said Jehoram, how on earth did he get here? <laughs> he must be one of the men called up in the militia. I don't much like him. But there is no denying that he is a prophet of Yahweh. Yes, we've heard of him even down in Judah, Jehoshaphat agreed. The word of Yahweh is with him. Let us hear what he has to say. And so the three kings set out into the camp to find this prophet, Elisha. King Mesha of Moab had not merely been waiting all this time. He had some of his best fighters out in the field with him, and they had been watching the Israelite army from a distance for several days now. He had watched with satisfaction as they grew ever more desperate and frantic in their search for water. Oh, this was going to be even better than he had planned. No army could hold together under this kind of stress. He felt certain that the Israelites would be at the throats of their allies before long, maybe even by morning. And if that happened, Mesha would be ready to strike.
the three kings found the prophet sitting in a circle of fellow soldiers and regaling them with stories of floating axe heads and homicidal bears. The men sat spellbound by his words. There was no question that Elisha could spin a tale. When he looked up and saw the three kings staring at him, he didn't seem particularly impressed. He, he barely even looked up and continued with his story until the king of Israel loudly cleared his throat. <clears throat> Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to your father's prophets or to your mother's. Your parents always thought that they knew way better than Elijah or me. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is Yahweh who has summoned us three kings only to be handed over to Moab. Jehoshaphat looked over at the king of Edom and rolled his eyes. This guy really needed a new line. Elisha finally sighed and said, Fine, as Yahweh Sabaoth lives, whom I serve, if King Jehoshaphat of Judah weren't here, I wouldn't even look at you. But, all right, I will seek a word from Yahweh. Quick, somebody go get me a musician. A harpist and a flute player were soon found. They always seemed to travel with any army, and they began to play a simple and repetitive tune over and over. At first, the prophet closed his eyes and swayed to the melody, but nothing seemed to come to him. He took some herbs out of his pack and threw them on the campfire, inhaling the sweet smoke that began to rise from it. His eyes grew wide, and he began to look around wildly. He looked at the distant clouds and watched the flight of the birds. Finally, a strange change came over him as if he were beside himself. He spoke with a strange, unearthly voice. You shall see neither wind nor rain, but the wadi shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your cattle, and your animals. And Elisha went on from there to predict complete and total victory over the rebellious Moabites. The three kings turned and looked at each other. Oh yes, they smiled. 
it looked like this thing was on again. The flood started the next morning, a bit before sunrise. The wadi, the deep valley that cut across their path forward, was suddenly filled with water. The sudden torrent was indeed a great wonder. Anyone who had passed through these desert regions before had seen a wadi filled with water. Uh, that's what wadis were occasional stream beds. But no one could remember a flood happening quite so quickly or so violently, and certainly not when the cloudburst that had obviously caused it was so far away that the clouds were merely a smudge on the horizon. They knew that this was indeed no ordinary occurrence and that Yahweh had surely blessed their endeavor. The people cried out their praise to Yahweh and to his prophet, Elisha, as they went forward to drink and to water their animals. King Mesha's advance party had camped out just over a ridge from the Israelites the night before. And so it was that as they awoke that morning, they heard the sound of great cries and shouts coming from the camp. Mesha looked around at his men triumphantly. This is it, boys. Our moment has finally come. The Israelites, the Judahites, and the Edomites have all turned against each other. He then climbed up to the top of the ridge and peeked over. He was staring straight into the sun that was just coming over the horizon. But he had no eyes for the glorious red sunrise, because he could only see the reflection of that sun in the water of the wadi. From where he was watching, it looked as if the entire Israelite camp had been transformed into pools of blood. He gave a great cry of victory and called out to his men, This is our chance. The fools have done our work for us, and they have all slaughtered each other. Their campsite is red with blood. Let us go and take the spoils, for we have won the day. And so it was that the men of Moab flew down that ridge and straight into the Israelite camp in complete disarray. Weeks later, Mesha looked back on that morning as the day when everything had fallen apart. Instead of running into what they expected, an enemy army at war with itself, they suddenly found themselves surrounded and outnumbered by a newly united and jubilant army 
that had just seen something that convinced them that their God was on their side. Mesha had just managed to get out of that camp with his life, and he took few enough of his companions with him. Ever since, he had been on the run as the triumphant Israelites harried him all the way back to his own territories. One by one, he had seen his cities and fortresses fall before the seemingly unstoppable invaders. What's more, in an act of revenge for what their enemies had done to them, the Israelites had fouled every spring and stopped up every well throughout the land. And now, here he was, at the very end of his strength, here, at Kir Hereseth, the last fortified city that he possessed, this war would come to an end, one way or another. He only had a few hundred troops left with him. Though they were the best of the best who had survived unspeakable horrors in recent weeks, they had been fighting bravely to defend this city. But they were near to the breaking point. Just yesterday, Mesha had taken a company of his best and had attempted to break through the siege at its weakest point by attacking the Edomite contingent. But even that had failed, and a deep sense of despair and gloom had settled over the remaining Moabites. It seemed as if the strength of this world had deserted Mesha. There was only one hope left. And so it was that the king had spent his night praying and sacrificing before his god, Kemos. Again and again, he vowed that he would do whatever it took, that he would give to the god whatever he demanded, if only he would save his kingdom. It was only in the wee hours of the morning that the king finally heard the answer to his prayers. He realized that there was only one thing, only one, that Mesha could offer that might possibly make the god change his mind. And so everything was arranged. This thing had to be done out in front of the whole army. They all had to see it and understand that the king would give anything for victory. Only then would they understand that they too must give all that they had. An altar was set up on the city walls themselves, and while both his troops and the enemy combatants looked on, Mesha took his son, his eldest son and heir, and burned him in the fire as a sacrifice to Kemosh.
the succeeding battle was an enormous success. The men of Moab felt filled with strength and courage, almost as if they were certain that they could take any risk without fear, because their God was on their side. Meanwhile, the Israelites and their allies seemed to have lost heart following the gruesome spectacle on the wall. Before long, they broke, and many of them began to flee before the rage of the Moabites and of their God. And so it was that Mesha won the independence of his kingdom and freedom from the domination of Israel. The story of the war between Jehoram, king of Israel, and Mesha, king of Moab, is one of the very few biblical stories of that era for which we have independent corroboration. Not only is the story told in the third chapter of Second Kings, we actually also have the story told directly by one of the participants. When King Mesha of Moab had finally won back his independence from the Israelites, he was so proud of himself and of his God that he set up a monument, known today as the Mesha Stele, to commemorate it. That Stele has been recovered, and we can read it today. Now, Mesha's account of the war is not exactly the same as the Bible's. Unsurprisingly, the Moabite inscription is a bit more inclined to focus on how great Mesha was, more than anything else. But both the Bible and the Stele agree that Mesha won independence in the end. The Bible's account has much more detail than the Moabite account, so I did have to rely mostly on it to retell this story. But the mere existence of another point of view certainly encouraged me to remember that there is always another way to see any historical event, maybe especially a war. Wouldn't it be wonderful, for example, to hear the story of the Battle of the Wadi from the Moabite side? Of course, the really shocking thing about the biblical story is the ending. King Mesha makes a child sacrifice to his god, something that is thoroughly condemned in many places in the Bible, and yet it is apparently effective. The sacrifice leads to victory which would have been interpreted as the Moabite god, Chemosh, actually besting the god of Israel. It is also an ending that is in direct contradiction of the prophecy 
given by Elisha earlier in the story. It is kind of remarkable that something like that made it into the Bible. I can only assume that this was because it was a reflection of reality, the same reality that Mesha was com commemorating on his stele. There was no denying it. The Moabites and their God had won. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is a great way to help other people find this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ah Da. The mood music for this episode is Final Battle of the Dark Wizards. The music is by Kevin McLeod, is licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>